Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. When we counsel men and women here at Faith Bible Church, it's not uncommon for any of the counselors here to give direction to the counseling by pointing to this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. You might think that for a married couple who is struggling, the aim they should have is to stop struggling, to deal with the crisis, to deal with the issues and get along. Or you might think for the man who comes in with an anger problem, that his aim ought to be to calm down. Or if a woman is addicted to painkillers, the aim is to get off opioids. Those are all good lesser aims. But they're lesser aims. They're goals or aims along the way to something much more important than any of them. What is that aim? What is that chief goal? Not just for Christians, but this is the goal God intended for every human. We make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. That's why you exist. To be pleasing to God. And if you answer the question, what is your main aim in life with to be pleasing to God or to glorify God by be pleasing to Him, the next question we follow up with is, how much do you want it? Paul told the Thessalonians, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. We know that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have our lives, our souls united to His through faith in Him, we know that we have His righteousness. It's counted to us. Therefore, we already are pleasing to God. When God looks at you, He is pleased because He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And yet, that being true, if you are united to the life of Christ, you share His heart, and you have this desire deep within yourself. You want to please Him more and more in your actual practice, in your behavior, in how you think, in how you talk. It's difficult to explain to someone who doesn't know Christ. But if you know Christ, there's this insatiable hunger. It's not after wealth. It's not prestige. It's not power. It used to be. It's not. We want to please God more than we do now. Amen. And it's a very unusual desire to have because no one else shares that desire, but we do. It is our craving more and more. And really, everything else in your life, at this point, it's just fine print. Where you work, who you marry, it's just the fine print. Your life is mainly about pleasing God. And it is about developing an attitude, therefore. Developing an attitude, developing maybe better said an appetite for pleasing God. 
to crave that. For that reason, among many other reasons, I suppose in God's mind, we are now turning our attention to a book of the Bible. We finished Galatians, and our intention is to study together verse by verse through 31 chapters of this book that is known as 1 Samuel. This book is really one in a series of four books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. They all go together as a unit. We're going to be focused on this first one. But within this first book, 1st Samuel, what we find is the rise of one of the greatest kings of all time. It is King David of Israel. One of the reasons that you and I are so interested in David is because he is called in this book a man after God's own heart. Meaning, the way he lived, the way he thought, the way he spoke was pleasing to God. God through Scripture points at David's life, which was imperfect and as we will learn with joy, was a prototype pointing to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, the true king. He'll be all through this. But David as a prototype is a life where God points at him and says, this is the kind of person that pleases me. And for you and me, if we have this appetite where we crave to be more and more pleasing to God, then we are going to pay very careful attention to David. David's life will be set in contrast to those who were not after God's own heart. And so we will see a person like Saul, the first king of Israel, not pleasing to God. Don't be like Saul. But he really just serves as a backdrop to David. That's why I propose that our theme verse, if you will, for our study should be the one found in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where Samuel the prophet speaks to Saul, who you don't want to be like, and he tells him this. But now your kingdom, Saul, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince, or we would say king, over his people. Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And what you find in that one verse is what is going to guide our overview of 1 Samuel today. We're not looking at any particular passage. We're overviewing 31 chapters to prepare you as we begin to look passage by passage next week. But that verse guides us because you have the backdrop of Saul, who is not a man after God's own heart, and set against him is in the foreground, David, the man the Lord sought out, who is after God's own heart. Those of us who want to be after God's own heart, let's give careful attention to this overview of this great book of Scripture. So let's begin then by focusing on the background, the contrast. This is not the main focus of this book, but it is the contrast set in the background of those who are not after God's own heart and therefore are not pleasing to God. And let's begin by considering who these characters are. I mentioned Saul already, and he will be the main contrasting character, foil. If you study literature, he's the foil. He is the one who sets apart what David is like for us, makes it clear. 
Saul is the main one, but really, 1 Samuel is the story of four important characters, the last being David. We're going to see that the first is Samuel. Of course, this book is named after Samuel. Then we'll see Eli and his sons. We'll see Saul. We'll see David. And these four characters that we'll study throughout these books are set in pairs of two, and they're both contrasts. Samuel contrasted with Eli, the good and the bad. Saul contrasted with David, the bad and the good. Those are all the characters who make up the center of the story. Samuel is not one of the bad characters, but I have to explain just a brief something about him to you in order for us to talk about the bad characters. Samuel, of course, is the one whose name is on the cover of this book, 1 Samuel. That is not, by the way, because he wrote the book, although he may have had a hand in writing it, but he dies in chapter 25. So, very unlikely that he wrote this book. He may have contributed to it. But it's called 1 Samuel because the story begins focused on him. This story is set at the end of the book of Judges. So, if you have ever studied that book, Way back toward the beginning of your Bible in Exodus, God brought His people Israel out of Egyptian slavery, and He led them on to a place He promised to give them. In the book of Joshua, He gave them the land. Joshua leads the people, they drive out the evil inhabitants, they receive the land of Canaan, or what we call Israel. But then the book of Judges is when they have taken over at least halfway the land. You see this spiraling where God is in charge of the people, but they are not faithful to Him. So, an enemy comes in, oppresses the people, they repent, under the pressure of it, God sends a judge. Not a judge like you think of a judge, but a type of national leader, not a king, but a judge, who under God delivers the people and guides them. The judge dies, the people turn away from God, they are oppressed, God sends salvation with another judge. But if you've ever read the book of Judges, it spirals like this. It gets worse and worse and worse to the end of the book of Judges. And that's where we find ourselves. Samuel, we could almost consider him the last of the judges. He's other things. He's a prophet. He's a kind of priest involved in sacrifices, as we'll see. But he's also the last of the judges. 1 Samuel 12, 11 lists Samuel at the end of a list of judges Quote, the Lord sent Jerubael, that's a judge, and Barak, that's a judge, and Jephthah, that's a judge, and Samuel. If you're interested in the historical chronology of things, let's just say that this takes place somewhere around 1000 BC. Personally, what I find helpful, if you don't have exact dates, is just to say about 2000 BC was Abraham. And then 500 years later, about 1,500 was Moses, about 1,000 was David, about 500 was the Babylonian captivity, and then you have Jesus, (laughs) zero. So we are at about 1,000 BC, and we have here the end of the Judges, things have gone down in a bad way. If you remember the last verse in the book of Judges is, quote, in those days there was no king in Israel, just Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you've ever let your children do what is right in their own eyes, you know what that looks like, and it's not good. 1 Samuel 3.1 actually describes this arid season that Samuel is in at the beginning of our book like this. 
and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Dry spell. But Samuel marks the beginning of the end of that dry spell at the end of Judges. He is a prophet who receives the word of the Lord. He is a judge. He is a priest. He becomes so not in Jerusalem, which has not been established as a center of worship yet, as it will be later under Solomon and David, but instead in a place called Shiloh. That's where our book begins for Samuel. Shiloh is a place of worship, and young Samuel is a boy, as we'll see, serving in that house of worship. That, finally, with that background, allows us to consider the bad guys of this book. Because the first bad guys are not Saul, but actually the priest at Shiloh, where Samuel is serving. His name is Eli. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, this triad, serve as the first foils or background or things you don't want to be if you want to please God. There will also be a Penina. She's someone you don't want to be either, but she only features for a short time, so we'll see her when we get to her. But these Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, are really just at the beginning preparing us for Samuel in contrast, and they lead into the greater failure who is Saul himself. The man named Saul. Now, God used Saul, and that's obvious because in the New Testament, we find someone named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, named after the first king of Israel, Saul. God used Saul, but Saul in his life is not the sort of person you want to be. The very first king of Israel, Samuel anoints him, first human king of Israel, Saul, is not what you want to be. But everything he's not, the second king David will be, as we will see. So you have Eli, Hophni, Phinehas there in Shiloh, and you have Saul. They are the backdrop of what it means to live your life in a way not pleasing to God. Now that we've identified the characters in the background, we can look at what was it about their lives that we're going to see over the next several months that shows that that's not the way you want to live your life. These are the things you want to avoid if you want to be pleasing to God. I think that the very center of it all, for all of them, is given to us in 1 Samuel 2.12. Now the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They had no personal relationship with Yahweh, God of heaven most high. They were involved in the sacrifices literally every day of their life, involved in sacrifices to God, in close proximity to the center of the worship of God, but it says they did not know Him. To them, God was a theory. I don't know in their heart of hearts what they really believed about God. Probably they believed He existed. They probably were not atheists, but they were more like many of us have been in the past. There's a God out there somewhere He's not that important, and what he says isn't that important. They did not know the Lord. That was the essential problem. If you want to live a life that is not pleasing to God, just don't know the Lord. 
God didn't interrupt their lives or their thoughts very much. We'll find the same to be true of Saul. You know, I have sometimes wondered why it is that, as we'll see, God rejected Saul from being king for two great sins of disobedience. But later in 2 Samuel, that we won't cover, when David committed two great, possibly even greater sins of disobedience, God did not reject David. And I think the difference comes down to this. David knew the Lord. And Saul, if he knows the Lord, barely knows the Lord and maybe doesn't know him. We're going to see that in Saul's life. David is the sort of person who writes the Psalms. My God, even when he had sinned, forgive me. Saul would never have written the Psalms. We're going to see as we look at Saul's life, he's not very directly interested in God. Actually, Saul often uses God's name, but only to swear, and often to swear something falsely. He does inquire of God, but he inquires of God when it's beneficial to him, on the eve of a great battle, when he doesn't want to die. Then he inquires of God. Saul looks humble at first, but that quickly changes. He obeys sometimes kind of, kind of. He has some successes, but what you don't find in Saul is, for example, a regular prayer life. You don't find, you find that in David all the time. You do not find this in Saul. We do not see Saul focusing on God because Saul either doesn't know the Lord or doesn't know him well, and we leave it to God to be the judge of that. But as we'll see in this text, him as background, that's the essential problem with Saul, more essentially even than the disobedience, which is important, but it's that he doesn't know the Lord. There's no interaction there as there will be with David. God does not like that kind of a thing in a person. Don't you know that you were created to know the Lord? God could have made us like the animals, unreasoning, and just put us on the planet and been amused to watch us walk around and eat grass. But instead, God gave you an intellect and a will and the ability to have personal relationships in a way that no animal can. I know, I'm sorry. You dog lovers, that's fine. You've got a relationship with your dog. That's fine. That's great. It's different. That's all I'm saying. People are able to have relationships that are different. And God did that so that you could know him. Eli, Hophni, Phineas, Saul. Their essential problem was they didn't know the Lord or didn't know him well, as we'll see. Now, from that central problem flows all the other problems, as we're going to see as well. For example, because they did not know the Lord, number one, they did not honor the Lord. Especially in the case of Samuel, this becomes central to the sin, not Samuel, of Eli. This becomes central to the sin of Eli. Eli and his sons, they're priests in Shiloh. They are there close to the holiest things in that nation. And yet we read in chapter 2, verse 29, what God tells Eli. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me See the word honor? Honor your sons above me. 
by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. And if you look two verses later, that famous line, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Saul, because he did not know the Lord, did not honor the Lord either. Actually, Saul was very interested in honor, but he was interested in his own honor and not in God's honor, just like Eli was more interested in his son's honor rather than God's honor. And so what we find in the life of Saul is that when he is confronted for one of his great sins, this is what he says in chapter 15, verse 31. Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Your God. My God, your God. The person who is not after God's own heart does not know the Lord personally and therefore is not ultimately interested in glorifying or honoring the Lord. Maybe in tongue, maybe in speech, but there's not that inner craving for God to be honored. The second thing that flows out of not knowing the Lord in the person not pleasing to God is that someone who doesn't know the Lord does not listen to God's words. We will see this all the way through this book, that those who exist in the background as the contrast are not those who listen to what God says. They do not obey His commands. They do not give careful attention to His words. Early in this book, God declares to Eli and Shiloh Two times, once through another prophet, once through Samuel, that he is going to judge Eli's house, wipe it out almost entirely because of this sin of honoring his sons above God. When God booms his message through the prophet and through Samuel to Eli, Eli's response is this. This is in chapter 3, verse 18. Eli's response to God's mighty word is, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That is a false kind of piety. No, no, no. This is the right response. Tear the clothes, ashes on the head, tremble before God's mighty word. Those who are not pleasing to the Lord don't really care about God's word. And we'll see that. In Eli, it'll be exactly the same in Saul. And this is the thing in Saul that is most highlighted throughout this book, is that he does not listen. It actually becomes fairly frustrating. And even as I've read this over and over preparing for today and this series, it's heartbreaking and somewhat frustrating how Saul always seems close to obeying God's Word. He always kind of obeys God's Word, but he just won't do it all the way. He just won't. So when God commands Saul, Wait seven days for Samuel to come before you sacrifice and go to battle with the Philistines. Saul does wait seven days. Good. And on the seventh day, in impatience, he forces his hand because Samuel's nowhere to be seen. And he himself sacrifices the animal. God said, wait seven days and let Samuel sacrifice. And Saul says, I waited seven days. I kept the command halfway. It's good enough. I'll sacrifice. Or again, when God tells Saul, wipe out the wicked Amalekites, 
Saul goes and he does wipe out the wicked Amalekites, except he doesn't kill their king. And he spares the best of the animals for sacrifices, so he says. It's like he almost did it. But you see, the reason he almost obeys but never goes all the way is because he doesn't have a personal relationship with the Lord, not a deep one, and therefore he doesn't tremble at the words of the Lord. It's going to be different, as we'll see, with people like David. This is why we get those famous words from Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. (laughs) So these are all the things God doesn't like and you're going to see them for weeks and weeks on end. Both in Eli and his house, Hophni and Phinehas, you'll see them in Saul. What God does not like above all else is his creatures whom he's created to have a personal relationship with him, turning their back, having no personal relationship with him, and therefore not honoring him and not listening to him. That's the backdrop. But, of course, we say backdrop because that's in the background to highlight for us what's in the foreground. And so now we turn to consider those in this book who are the example of what it means to live your life pleasing to God, to live after God's own heart. Again, if we consider who these people are, David's the primary one. Everything really sets up for David. But Samuel will be the other one. Four main characters. And David and Samuel are the good guys. They're both really after God's own heart, although it's only said of David. Samuel, though, and his relationship with Eli, Hophni, Phinehas is preparatory. Samuel is important primarily because he anoints David. He's pointing toward David. David is truly the man after God's own heart, as we saw quoted earlier in chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. I actually remember when I was in high school, I had a world religions class and we took a field trip to several local places of worship. I remember when we went over to the synagogue that's over by I-69. At the time, there was a rabbi, she was a woman. I don't know who's the rabbi there now. But I remember she had asked our class, who do you think to the Jews, granted this is one group of the Jews, the more liberal branch here that she was speaking for, but she said, who do you think for the Jews is the most important character in our scriptures, be our Old Testament. And people guessed Moses, obviously. She said, no, it's David because he won the most land. (laughs) Now, she was right in the first part of that, but not exactly in the second. David is possibly the most important character, apart from God himself, in the Old Testament. But he is so important, not because he won the most land, but he is so important because he is a man after God's own heart and serves to prepare us for his descendant, Jesus, as we'll see. So the people after God's own heart in this text will be Samuel and David. Now, we finally come to what is the most important part of what we're considering right now. What is it? about David and Samuel to a lesser degree that makes him a man after God's own heart. You could just reverse everything we said about Eli's house and Saul and you would have your answer. The most central thing about David 
that which made him most pleasing to God was his personal relationship with the Lord. Samuel and David knew God. We see them interacting with God in a way that we don't see others interacting with God. That's a trademark of David's life. It's also true of Samuel. We, you'll see that famous story early in this book of Samuel lying in the temple in Shiloh, hearing a voice and thinking that it's Eli's voice, but finding out that's God's voice because God is personally interacting with Samuel, and Samuel responds in kind. We read at the end of chapter 3, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel's growth was in a relationship with the God who was with him. Personal relationship, receiving communication after a dry spell of silence. Samuel was not a perfect character, of course. He looked at Saul's outward appearance and thought, that's a great king. He looked at David's older brother, Eliab, as we'll see, and said, that would be a great king. And God had to say, no, 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 you're thinking wrong. It's not about what's outside. God looks at the heart. Samuel was not perfect, but do you know what Samuel had? A personal relationship with Yahweh. But of course, the greatest example of this is in David's own life. David has been my favorite character of the Bible since I was as young as I can remember. And it is this more than anything that I've always loved in David, that he was fairly impractical. There were so many times when he could have done a very practical thing. You will see when he spends much of his life running away from a paranoid Saul who's trying to kill him, that David could have eased his burdens and everyone's burdens by just killing Saul. David was the better warrior. He found him one time Saul in a cave. He could have killed him. His men said, God has put him in your hand. Go ahead and kill him. It happened another time. Saul is asleep. David is there. His friend says, let me put a spear through Saul. Get us out of the caves. You can rule. You've already been anointed as king at this point. You can rule. Life will be easy. And you know, in the most frustrating way to practical people, he just won't do it. You say, well, why? Because David knew the Lord. David knew the Lord in a way that made him different than he would have been if he didn't know the Lord. When God rejected Saul as king, Saul was interested in being honored. He was interested in being honored. That was his focus. Rejected as king, honor me still. But you know, when Samuel learned that Saul was rejected, you know what Samuel did? Someone who knew the Lord? 1 Samuel 15, 11. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Samuel's not a perfect man. David's not a perfect man, but they're the kind of men that when turmoil comes into their life, they sometimes get angry and cry to the Lord all night because they knew the Lord. When you read the Psalms, like we're doing in our Bible reading as a church right now, many of the Psalms come from David himself. We sing the Psalms in worship. We read the Psalms when we pray. They are worshipful they are personal relationship with God because that's the kind of relationship David had with God, not like Saul's. We first find evidence of this relationship in the famous story, chapter 17, of David and Goliath 
where you have David at this point, just a young shepherd boy watching sheep in the fields. And he says, I can go kill that giant. How can you go kill that giant? With a sling and some rocks. How are you going to kill that giant with a stone and a sling? And David's reply coming out of his relationship with God is, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear while he was watching sheep will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David had a confidence in God because he actually knew him. And of course, this young enthusiasm we'll see in David has to be tested in order to deepen David's relationship with God. It's the same way with you. You'll be hiding in caves if you really want to know God well. And that's what happens with David's life. There he is in chapter 17, killing Goliath. But you know, it was in chapter 16 where Samuel went, anointed him with oil, said, you are now the king in place of Saul. Do you know when David actually in practice became the king? Not until 2 Samuel chapter 1. <laughs> You're only halfway through 1 Samuel when you get to chapter 16. You got to get to chapter 31. What's happening between 16 and 31? David is sitting in his royal palace with his feet up eating grapes. No, he's hiding in caves and he says things like this. There is one step between me and death. Because from that early chapter 17, killing of the giant in confidence because he knows God, there has to be half of the book. The last half of the book is David waiting, crying out to God, waiting to actually become king and hoping he won't be murdered with the men hiding with him, hiding his family in a foreign nation so paranoid Saul doesn't kill them. But that's always what happens if you want to know God personally. If you want to know him as a theory, live your life, everything will be fine. But if you want to know God deeply, then you will follow the pattern you find in David and in the son of David, Jesus Christ himself. There is a suffering that is a refining that makes it possible for us to know God deeply. And we are going to see that in David very often. Without this suffering through half this book, we would never have a superscription like the one in Psalm 57, which starts to the choir master according to do not destroy. <laughs> Makes sense for David to sing that. A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And the sad thing is, that could have been any of a number of times, as we're going to see. He fled from Saul in caves a lot. But then that psalm begins like this. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. That's a man who knows the Lord. If you want to be a person after God's own heart, that's the key characteristic God isn't looking for your perfection because you'll never offer it to him. You don't have it. You won't find it in this life. God's not looking for you to always judge everything correctly, always make exactly the right decision in every situation, always respond perfectly. It's not going to happen. Keep, don't be fatalistic. Keep growing toward it. It's not going to happen in this life. What God is looking for more than anything else is for you to have a personal, interactive relationship with him. Now, what flows out of that relationship with him and part of the way you know you have that relationship with him is, number one, you want to honor him. We could say to glorify him. That's why we exist as a church, to 
glorify God by exalting Christ and the sufficiency of His Word. That is a craving that flows out of the new life of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You want to honor Him. You walk very carefully in order to honor Him. God's not a joke. Maybe as an unbeliever, He was just a joke. He's not a joke to you anymore. He's everything. And then secondly, you tremble at His Word. Those who please the Lord honor Him, and those who please the Lord honor Him by listening to what He says. Do you think it's a bit excessive <laughs> that we go verse by verse through the Bible? And we were going at about a rate of four verses a week through Galatians. I'm going to up the speed a little, okay? We'll go probably about 10 verses a week through 1 Samuel, but you know, that's me pushing it. That's me pushing it. And you might think that's a little excessive to go so slowly. You could just preach one on 1 Samuel, move on. The, re the reason we do that is because 1 Samuel to us is not a hobby. It's not like a pastime. It's not just something for us to do on a Sunday morning together. These are the words of the living God that He has spoken to us as if a prophet stood up or as if God Himself in His manifest glory were to shatter the windows and boom through them these words. And we listen as if that's what's happening here. That's why we go every verse and glean everything we can. It's not about me or as we consider Bob as a new elder here. It's not about us as elders having an opinion about what we'll do and what we'll think and then trying to convince the rest of you. It is all of us united together listening to God's Word. That's why what happens here is really at the heart of everything that we do as a local church. This is God guiding us and directing us. You're going to see that in David, an almost frustrating attention to the words of God. Why won't he touch Saul? Because <laughs> God said, just like, you know, this verse says this, but what about this verse? God said you'll be king, so maybe conveniently that means kill Saul. And David said, no, 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 but this verse, God also anointed Saul, and I will not touch the Lord's anointed. David and Samuel listened carefully to the word of God, and if we want to live lives pleasing to God, we will have a personal relationship with him that shows itself in our craving to honor and glorify him, especially by listening carefully to all of his words. So these are the characters and these are the adventures that await us as we embark on this journey to work through 1 Samuel together. You've seen here that there will be characters in the background showing you how not to live if you want to please God. And they will set forth for us the characters in the foreground, Samuel and primarily David, a man after God's own heart, demonstrating how we ought to live and please God. But let me just close with this comment. As much as we want to please God, as much as we will learn from David in 1 Samuel, you will not please God enough. You won't do it. Samuel pleased God, not completely. He's looking at the outside. David pleased God, not completely. He actually almost slaughters an entire family out of a fit of anger. You'll see that. Not a complete pleasing of God. If we try to make this book only an example for how you can do things to please God, we are all going to be very discouraged. It's not even the primary purpose of this book. This book, yes, is an example for how we should please God. 
But this book also is one piece of a larger puzzle of God's great purposes. And the reason David is so important is not just because he was a man after God's own heart, but because there would one day be a son of David, meaning one of his descendants, of whom it was promised in 2 Samuel 7 to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is a real sense in which 2 Samuel 7 is what all of 1 Samuel is about. David is godly in some ways, pleases God in some ways, but it's so that we look at him go, wow, and then look to the son or descendant of David, who is not only everything David was, but everywhere David failed, the son of David did not. The son of David, the descendant of David, that son of David is a title used over and over of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is who comes from the body of David, one of his descendants David died. Solomon, his son, his offspring, died. Whose throne is established forever? It is the son of David, Jesus Christ. If God so much desires, as we'll see, for you to have a personal relationship with him, God also knows that the only way for that to happen is for the son of David to come into the world to live the perfect life, more than David, to die so that you, by faith, not in David, but by faith in the Son of David, can have your sins forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. If you want to live a life pleasing to God and more and more pleasing to God and fulfill the purpose for which you were created, you don't first go to David. You first go to the Son of David, whom all the scriptures are about, Jesus Christ on Calvary. And find there in his wounds and in his blood the forgiveness of your sins so that God can accept you into that personal relationship. And once you have that, then you join us to look at David, a man after God's own heart.